Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different Turkey Drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO-FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 138. Today on our show, Jake Mecklenburg. Subway was under construction for about five years. So the actual subway tunnels only took about, that we know, were built in four sections. And that only took about two years. So it was like six months a section. And then they were building up in St. Bernard and up in Norwood. And that was all above ground sections. So they were buying the land and making sure they had the land ready, even if they didn't get to, to actually building those sections. Jake wrote the book, quite literally, on the ill-fated Cincinnati subway system and is an expert on the area's highway system as well. To that end, he started a website called CincinnatiTransit.net. He explains what happened to that website and talks to us about the subway, Cincinnati's freeway system, and the region's highways as a whole. If you've been liking the podcast, you can support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at CincyShirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Jake Mecklenburg. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. So the, the first place we like to start is uh, getting your Cincinnati bona fides out of the way. Are you from Cincinnati? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, my entire family is from here going back you know, to the 1850s or something like that. So uh, I'm probably fifth or sixth generation on all sides of my family. Okay. Because our friend uh, Jeff Jakowick, who runs Cincinnati Traction website, is actually from Chicago, so I wasn't sure. And I'm from Cleveland, but I'm still fascinated by all the uh, transportation oh, stuff around I did, Cincinnati. I didn't know that he... I've met him before. I didn't know he was from Chicago. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, he, it, he's the one that gave me your contact info uh, to get this sorted. Well, also, so. it, it, it explains his name, too, because that is definitely not a Cincinnati family name. <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> I've, never been, I've never been able to pronounce it, and... Uh, and then when you actually leave Cincinnati and you haul around one of these old German names like I do, you realize nobody can uh, pronounce them either. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so do you have a job in transportation, or is this just like oh, a... Ab- absolutely not. Okay. So I did, I did actually um, work in journalism for a couple of years, uh, about 15 years ago at small places. I worked as a professional photographer and so on, but I have, uh, I, I'm not good enough at math to uh, get through an engineering program, so I absolutely do not work uh, in uh, engineering or architecture or anything like that. So how did this development of uh, this interest in highways and railroads and all that stuff develop? Well, I think it uh, developed because I, I realized there was absolutely no, you know, in the very earliest years of the Internet, in you know, 1996, 97, there was basically nothing 
on the entire city of Cincinnati on the internet. And I was a photography student at the time. So I realized that I could just take these photographs I wanted to take anyway and put them on a website and share them with people. So, you know, that was back when we thought the internet was going to be this nerdy paradise forever. And, you know, fast forward to 2003 or 2004, you know, just a few years later, and, you know, Wikipedia came along and it took all my content. And so, huh. you know, we, not, we now use the phrase content. I mean, I, we didn't even use the phrase content back then, but, you know, Wikipedia took everything from me and I haven't made any money off of anything I've done on the internet in probably 15 years because of it. Hmm. And not always accurately, though. It's really weird that, um, I mean, Wikipedia is fine, but if you're going to use it as any kind of a source, you have to go down and make sure that they have sources at the bottom, and then you need to check those sources. And a lot of times they go to broken links and things that are so, like, yep. if ever I use it, I'm like, well, if I can't verify this some other way, I'm, I'm not using well, it. Well, and the internet itself has changed profoundly. I mean, it went from being this thing that you sat at a desk, at a desktop computer, and maybe dedicated 45 minutes or... 90 minutes to web surfing, a term which has disappeared also. Yes. And people would kind of follow things down the rabbit hole, which was a phrase that didn't <laughs> exist back then. And you'd spend a lot of time. People had eclectic interests. They had hobbies. You'd run on these, run upon these sites that were, you know, crudely laid out, but very clever. You know, they'd be sarcastic. The whole thing would be a joke. I mean, and everything was kind of its own genre. And, it was very, uh, people were willing to give away their knowledge. They were willing to give away their energy and their, uh, their, their uh, help on uh, you know, trying to figure something out. And um, that has all been uh, taken over by a sort of like this egocentric me, me, me thing where it's all about you, you know, that it couldn't exist back then because the Internet wasn't visual. It was, it was text-based and uh, with very, very little in the way of photographs. And... Uh, it's kind of funny looking back at the files that I uploaded originally because they're 30k files. I mean, the thought of being able to upload and download one megabyte, oh yeah, you know, photographs, let alone video as it, as it exists now. I mean, it was just inconceivable at the time. It, uh, our sister site, uh, Old School Shirts, we have a collection of old tech, and one of the shirts we have is Commodore 64, and uh, the 64 stands for 64 kilobytes. Which was like that was all the memory in the world <laughs> right. back then. Sixty-four kilobytes and to give people an idea right, right, out there, I'm... to give folks an idea, a good a good photograph is about a megabyte. Which we usually ask for in the in the journalism business. If you're going to send me a photograph, I'm going to use uh, to reprint and print on it, City Beat or even online. One megabyte is usually the benchmark, and a song is about three megabytes to give you an idea. So oh yeah, I mean it was it was wave files. I remember when the MP3 came about. It took so long to download. I I mean it took. Uh, 10 minutes to download a song but it was an mp3 so i i didn't understand why people started putting these mp3s on their websites back in 1999 <laughs> <and> so <on. laughs> well so let's get back to the uh the transportation bit of it uh what was like your your big interest was it just transportation in general was it the subway was because you kind of overlap a little bit with uh with jeff we talked to jeff uh, up through Cincinnati traction through like interurban railroads, so we get up to like World War Two ish, and we decided probably Jake would be the better person to pick up the ball from here and carry it forward. I think I was never as a kid, you know, I was never really interested in trains or those sorts of things. I was kind of interested in what they did, like what sort of effect they had on the city, the effect that they had on connecting regions and so on, and. You know, in uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, the, the the hobby of model railroading. I, I don't know anything really about, 
you know, locomotives or cars or even the signaling systems or anything like that. I was always interested in like, you know, even how they got, how the railroads got financed back in the, 18- you know, I was interested, I was in a, interested in much more obscure parts of these things than I think the average person was. And, um, you know, in Cincinnati, the, the effect of the interstate highways, you know, when my grandparents and so on, all the old people neighborhood talked about how it was before they were built, I was completely fascinated by that because I even wondered, like, how did you get from this part of town to that part of town yeah. before they built, you know, 74 and 75 and 71? And the answer usually was, you just didn't go there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, also, I think I was affected, uh, and younger people won't remember this, but Cross County Highway was not done when I was a kid. And When I moved ended, here, it wasn't done. In the right, 90s. Right, it, it, and it, it ended abruptly at Coleraine Avenue yes. on the west side. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, when I was a kid, we, my friend Jeff and I and this kid named Jason Girth, we rode our bikes on Cross County Highway. On, cause we, it's just a dare. You know, we rode our bikes on what's essentially an interstate highway, you know, because there, was, there were no cars. You know, but there was this one exit ramp section that was open, and we were completely fascinated by, by that. And you, know, you couldn't get in on a map and really see where it was supposed to go. Or any, so it was just this big mystery, the way it just dead-ended into the woods by the PetSmart. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. then, uh, and then I was in high school when it was being finished, but uh, I think I left town um, when it actually opened. And when I came back and drove on it for the first time, it was just, it was like magic. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just couldn't, it, the way it, in my mind, it just, you know, where it went, it was just kind of unclear. And that's the sort of fog that I think that, you know, all Americans, we all lived under that before, honestly, before Google uh, Earth came out, because I mean, Google Earth has completely changed our comprehension of where we live and the places that we visit in a way that I remember uh, there used to be a, a, a site that existed called Microsoft Terra Server, and it existed in the early 2000s, or even in the late 90s. And you could not scroll left to right. You could download one black and white panel from the satellite image at the time. And uh, you know now we have, obviously, Google Earth. We have Cages here in Cincinnati. We have all these uh, tools. I mean, you know, the, uh, the GPS trackers for when you go bicycling or, or hiking or something like that. I mean, that has completely changed things in a way that I think is not, it's not glamorous. But uh, it's very easy for us as armchair uh, hobbyists, you know, in these things to, to really come up with ideas, you know, to, to, to identify problems more accurately and have basically the tools that only the, the professionals had in the past. So let's pick it up from, well, you, you wrote a book on the subway, so that kind of overlaps right. our conversation with Jeff. And people, we, we were talking about this the other day at Shirts, like catch just being in the business, we are talking about stuff that's old in Cincinnati. We kind of get the impression that, well, people know about the subway. Because I thought about it, well, people know about it, but they don't really know about it. They know there was one. They can identify some of the bits of it. Uh, along, especially along I-75, uh, but that's really it. Oh, and then it, 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 they tried to build it, and of course, ran out of money or something like that. I think that's basically what the layperson knows about the subway. So, could you walk us through just a little brief history of the start of the subway and then why it went belly up? Right. I mean, the the the, the subway project was actually two projects that were combined into one, and so the the part that everybody is familiar with and the part that was actually built was doing something with the canal, which didn't serve any practical purpose. And it was a completely level and very easy way for a new railroad to enter into Cincinnati. And at that time, people were very skeptical of the railroads. Uh, they wanted public control. And so it's kind of like today where people are starting to grow very anxious over you know, Google and Facebook having access to our entire lives. It's kind of like in not, in not having a way to push back. 
uh, that public control and electri- electrification were two things that the public was demanding. And it's kind of interesting up in Cleveland when they built a terminal tower, you know, they were able to electrify the approaches to it to keep the uh, coal burning, uh, you know, locomotives of the era out of the center of Cleveland. And there was a sort of a push here to do the same thing. And uh, the other side of the project was an eastern transit line, which would have gone where Columbia Parkway is now uh, to O'Brienville to Owlsnest Park, which uh, is between O'Brienville and Evanston. And then along the current route of I-71 past uh, Smith Edwards and uh, up to Norwood and that, that kind of gully that I-71 travels through. So the, the, uh, the canal went north to Norwood, and so did the other thing. So they came very close to being a circle. And so politically, it was decided to do both at once and to propose a circle because circles are equitable. They're not very controversial. And in fact, you know, really the only area of the city that was built up at that time that this would not have served at all uh, was Price Hill. So with the exception of Price Hill and I guess uh, – I think Sailor Park might have even been part of the city since I by now, um, by the 1910s. But, uh, you know, it was a very considered a very fair thing. It was actually very, very inexpensive to build because the state already owned so much of the right-of-way and so on. So we were able to build this transit line for much cheaper than any other city could build something like that. So it actually made a ton of sense. And also, there was the push to uh, move residents out of the city of Cincinnati to some extent, north to Norwood, which was expected to be, you know, part of the city of Cincinnati someday. And, of course, here we are all these years later, 100 years later, and it's still not. And the flatland where Bond Hill is and up to where you know, General Electric is now, that was all still farms. And so the assumption was that that was where the city of Cincinnati was going to grow toward. And it did grow in that direction, but it, in fact, ended up growing in all directions because the highways made that possible. And the highways were inconceivable in the 1910s when the, when the subway uh, was funded, and, and then it broke ground on January 1st, uh, 1920, after a noteworthy delay. And then what happened, is like you said, it was pretty economical to build it because there was already, a, for most of it, there was already a big trench in the ground, so that was right, sorted. Right, right. I, I mean, what, what, what happened was, and this is getting into, uh, you know, larger geopolitics, obviously, but the World, World War One had begun when we voted to build the subway, but the United States had not entered. And so when the United States entered the First World War in 1917, the federal government put a moratorium on local governments selling bonds. And so because there was no money, there was no way for us to start. And in fact, during the World War I, we were melting down Civil War cannon and things like that for the war effort. So there was, you know, aside from the money issue, you know, there was a complete you know, focus toward, toward the war effort. The war ended in late 1918, and in, um, in January of 1919, the federal government returned control of all the nation's railroads back to the railroads. So there was actually this very intriguing period of about uh, one to two years where the federal government ran the nation's railroads, which was this kind of push towards you know, scary music socialism, <laughs> which, you know, if you understand the time when all these, you know, robber baron characters, the Vanderbilts, all these kind of Rockefellers, all these people... You know, about 15 guys controlled, you know, 80% of the country as well. You can understand why there was that pushback. But then also the federal government ran the, ran the railroads in order to prevent price gouging and to also do the most efficient operation possible. And there's some interesting analysis of that that found that the government ran the railroads much better than the, the private companies did from an efficiency standpoint. But staying on topic, in 1919, there were a couple uh, lawsuits 
uh, the, the Ohio Supreme Court uh, threw out some aspects of the uh, agreement that the city of Cincinnati had to operate it. But we went ahead and started anyway because it was all assumed that that was going to resolve itself. But the other effect of the First World War was the United States and the rest of the world's currencies were all still on the gold standard. And what happens when the entire world goes to war? Everybody sells their gold, which causes the price of gold to go down, and it caused everything to double in price. And so the $6 million bond issue that we had in, uh, that we passed in 1916 was effectively only worth $3 million. But they had, you know, they, they had the option to not spend anything. But the, the fact was that we wanted to develop what is now Central Parkway above the subway. So the subway had to be built. It was like now or never for the subway. You know, so it was like if they, if they didn't build the subway now, they were never going to build it. So they went ahead and they built the actual subway portion so that Central Parkway could then be built in place of the canal. So, uh, and also Central Parkway was funded by a completely separate bond issue. And in fact, the Central Parkway bond issue, which didn't pass until about 1925, so actually after the subway was finished. So it's crazy. There are actually these photographs, some of them in my book, of the subway being finished and it just being covered in dirt. And the cars just started parking on it, like instantly. Because all of a sudden, there was just this parking space, you know, right in the middle of the city. And people came along and they parked. And, and, and so when Central Parkway came to be uh, voted on, there was the argument they were taking away that parking, if you can huh. imagine that. But the other thing was that there was a push for all of downtown Cincinnati to reconfigure around Central Parkway. So there was sort of a push that it would become the new center of downtown. So the center of downtown was then and still is Fountain Square. But there was this, and then I mean, if you go deeper into society's history, there was a time when it was 3rd Street, then it became 4th Street, then it became 5th Street. It's kind of stayed at 5th Street ever since. But there was this kind of natural progression north, but then it was going to jump the Central Parkway if the subway got built and, and when Central Parkway got built. And so there was a push against Central Parkway in much the same way we would have, like, you know, we imagine the push against the, the subway. And actually, Central Parkway cost as much to build as, as the subway did. So it's kind of funny to us how routine street paving is these days that, you know, back then the, the, the mechanized tools and so on for street paving didn't exist in the way they do now. So building Central Parkway from downtown up to uh, Ludlow Avenue, it cost him a huge amount of money for the day. And so when did the thing, when did they finally decide that, well, we're not going to be able to finish the subway? This is a bad idea. Well, it's, it, it's kind of, well, and nobody, nobody really said out loud that it was a bad idea. What, what happened was is that the regime change that happened in Cincinnati really shouldn't be hard for people to understand because, uh, you know, if you use a modern-day comparison. So what happened is the subway was under construction, for about five years. So the actual subway tunnels only took about, that we know, were built in four sections, and that only took about two years. So it was like six months a section. And then they were building up in St. Bernard and up in Norwood, and that was all above ground sections. So they were buying the land and making sure they had the land ready, even if they didn't get to, to actually building those sections. Uh, what happened was is the, the city government previously, you know, for 30 or 40 years, had been under uh, Boss Cox, who was... Um, we had sort of a political boss system like what they have still to this day in Chicago. And those guys were all kind of like uneducated guys or hard for the business community to control. And so there was a push by the business community in the 1920s to, to oust those guys. And they succeeded in doing it by completely changing the form of city government. So, so we went from like a ward system with like, you know, 25 uh, city councilmen and so on to the system that we still have today for the most part, which is a weak mayor. Now I know we do have a, 
we have a quote unquote strong mayor right now, but we, we really don't compared to a bigger, you know, bigger city system. So we changed to the nine at large county seats, which destroyed the wards and destroyed the power of those ward captains. Uh, and then, uh, we changed to a city manager form of government and it all sounded, you know, great, but it was, you know, it sounded like, Oh, this is good government. This is a better way of doing things. But, you know, we gained things, but we lost things at the same time. So, you know, we were under a, a, a system under the, under that machine, which, um, actually provided, you know, social services in the absence of, you know, social security and all these things that exist now, you know, at the local level, they provided, you know, hospitals, uh, Payday lending, <laughs> you know, coal for the poor during the poor when, you know, when it was cold out, all these kind of things. So, like, all that stuff kind of, like, disappeared. So, there, and then the subway was part of that. And actually, the Cincinnati Waterworks was the most expensive thing they did. So, when you drive out on these, well, it's Riverside Drive down, you see that, you know, spectacular waterworks going. It's uh, surrounded by a flood wall. That was actually the, the, the boss system that built this decadent building because people needed to know where their money was going. Now, of course, ah. some of it was going into their pockets, but they had to do <laughs> something, you know, grandiose to let people know they're getting something for the money. So what happened was is when the new government system came in, they had to destroy anything the previous system had been doing. So we see this all the time now. I mean, we saw when, when Cranley was elected in 2013 as mayor, he had to destroy the streetcar because it was the previous administration's project. And he came within an inch of actually destroying it, and he keeps harassing it to this day. So at that local level, it's not hard for us to understand that if you've been following that issue. At the national level, in Obama's first term, they, they passed the Affordable Care Act, which has caused, you know, the ensuing 10 years, we've seen the Republicans endlessly harass the Affordable Care Act just because it's something Obama did. And the, the details kind of like don't matter. And so... The subway was the same thing. Nobody cared about the details. So nobody cared that it was relatively inexpensive to finish. Now, by comparison, I know this statistic off the top of my head. It was going to take, so we had spent $6 million. It was going to take about $10 million of the city's money to finish. And then it was going to take about uh, upwards of $10 million for the, uh, for the streetcar company. Because a, a, a major detail of the story that's really not well known is that the Cincinnati Street Railway was going to operate the subway, not the city of Cincinnati. So it was going to be completely integrated with the street rail- railway, which was a for-profit system at the time. And as part of their lease agreement, they were going to outfit the stations, they were going to build the electric system, and they were going to buy the cars and operate them, right? So I just mentioned about you know tw- $20 million in total or so on in 1920s money to solve it. By comparison, New York's Penn Station cost $150 million to build. So just one station in New York City, cost many, many times more than this. So, you know, we can say, you know, in today's money, $20 million. I do not have $20 million. I'm never going to have it. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, it was not very much money. And we could have had this, I wouldn't quite, I, I, I hesitate to say transformative system, but on its own, it would have been a nice thing to have, for sure. Uh, without, you know, pretty sizable expansion upon that base, I don't think it would have been transformative without, you know, just this complete build out of all the dotted lines that went along with it out to, you know, outer railroads and so on that were supposed to link into it. So it's, you know, it is a little bit presumptive to say that, like, if it had been built, even in some form, that it would have completely changed the course of Cincinnati. I, I don't completely agree with that, but it, it certainly wouldn't have hurt. 
But there would have been lines coming off it to come out to, say, Anderson Township or the Western Hills or things. That was a, a, a down-the-road kind of plan, as it were? Well, 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 the whole thing was that those lines already existed. So the electric interurban system, which Jeffrey, oh, okay. I can't pronounce, Je- Je- yeah. you know, he, those things were built by private railroads, uh, by private companies in the 19, from about 1905 until about 1925. And there was a, a wild speculative bubble. And so, you know, we can imagine the, the dot-com boom. We can imagine the ridiculous valuation of Tesla right now, things like that. And we have these things all the time. And pe- anybody who had money was throwing money at interurban railroads back in the 1910s and 1920s. And they built so many of them that none of them really gained an advantage. And they were oftentimes trying to, like, compete with parallel steam railroads or they'd carve out, like, a little bit of a niche because they could climb steeper hills and some of them were narrow gauge and so on. So there were a lot of kind of, like, gimmicky hopes for those things. And they were also tied to development. So a developer would go and develop you know, several hundred homes or, you know, a little commercial district or factory or something around them. So there was a lot more to it than just, you know, just the profitability of the line itself independent of anything else. I mean, Los Angeles, the L.A. Basin was crisscrossed by hundreds of miles of these things, and they, they were all ripped up. And so, you know, it, our rapid transit loop uh, was going to have intersections with those existing lines at various points. And so the thought was like those train, those passengers would get off and get on to Cincinnati's trains and go into downtown. Or even in a couple cases, they would, it was hoped that they would change their rolling stock. And, you know, the, you know they were electric, so they had to operate on the same electric as Cincinnati's system if they were going to drive onto it. But there was also the hope that some of the interurban lines would actually drive directly onto uh, the Cincinnati rapid transit loop. And then those, they would pay like a, a, a fee. And so the, then that fee would come back to the, uh, streetcar company and the streetcar's profits a portion of that always went to the city of cincinnati wow i, I did not know that that's some uh, yeah so i mean there were, there were many aspects to it and i get really frustrated you know because I've, I've been on you know the radio stations you know 10 years ago when i wrote the book and those kind of things and those guys they don't have any patience to hear a fuller explanation of, of what the city i mean all this knowledge all this how cities used to be it's all been lost you know nationwide except for a handful of transit nerds who, uh, yeah. like I said at the very, very beginning, most of these guys are into, like, the rolling stock. They're into, like, its timetables or how it operates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How it was at its peak and stuff. And, like, I was never interested in that. I was kind of like, what effect can these things have? Yeah, I'm the same way. That's funny. I mean, I did have a train set when I was a kid. And I do enjoy the. I do enjoy train, but yeah, I don't. I don't get into the minutiae. Yeah. Same thing with cars. I love like old cars. I don't know. I couldn't point to where the carburetor is. I. I could. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know anything about that. But I love how again how the automobile affected uh, history. So yeah. Um. So let's speaking of the automobile. Um. Let's get past World War II. I guess is probably the next big significant shift. Uh. In not only in Cincinnati but America as a whole, because um. Kind of the the roots of the interstate highway system start to take place and uh, how does that take hold in cincinnati well i mean there were already every city already had dotted lines drawn for where they you know hope to do something and there was absolutely no way that a city could fund any of these things on its own they didn't have the mechanism to do it the states usually didn't let them levy fees on cars or uh on gasoline and those those were state roles from the very beginning and so the states started building turnpikes on their own. And so Ohio has a turnpike. West Virginia has one. Pennsylvania, uh, Indiana. Uh, there's the Chicago Skyway. There are, you know, uh, New York Thruway. Massachusetts Turnpike. I mean, there are a handful of these things. 
around the country that, that started construction in the 40s or 50s. And in fact, a, a very small portion of I-75 in Cincinnati was actually built in the 1940s, so a decade before. Uh, so the, the, the famous Lachlan split that we all know and love, when you drive southbound on I-75 and it has that crazy exit ramp that goes into the, the, the side of the, uh, the hill, yeah. that was built in the 1940s by the federal government in order to uh, uh, enable commuting uh, to the General Electric plant, which wasn't the GE plant at the time, but it was built hastily like, in 1942 for the war effort. So, uh-huh. um, and the federal government just you know, snapped its fingers, and the Army paid for it, and boom, it's there. So what happened in the 1950s was the, the states were struggling to fund these turnpikes because you know, they had to prove that there would be toll revenue to back the bonds to build them. So you know, the, the federal government came in and just solved the problem solve that funding problem by just throwing huge money at it. And so we had a, a three, per, uh, three cent national gasoline tax, and uh, that tax went exclusively after that point to building the interstate highway system. And so that's why you see, like in states like New Jersey and New York, you still see the old highways because those were you know, funded a little bit before that. And so that's why you, see, you still see odd exit ramps and things like that. And Cincinnati still has one or two of those because the, the Mill Creek Expressway, what is now I-75, actually did break ground before the Interstate Highway Act was passed. So, and all that's being replaced right now. So, um, you know, from uh, the I-74 interchange up to Paddock Road, you know, up until two or three years ago, you still see all the relics of the 1950s design on there, and that's all being erased as we speak. But, uh, you know, the state of Ohio had the idea to build a turnpike connecting Cincinnati and Cleveland, and that was going to go through Dayton and through Columbus and so on. But, uh, we didn't end up with a toll road. We ended up with a free one. And uh, that was the thing, too. All the federal highways were free. And so how, how can you ever expect people to pay to ride a train when they can drive their own car for free? So it was a very – and plus there was no, never any public vote for it or anything. And so the big imbalance that happened was that once the Federal Highway Act passed in 56, there was never another vote, never any local vote for any road project ever again, basically anywhere in the United States, certainly not in the city of Cincinnati. So there were never contentious issues. And in fact, it took huge grassroots efforts to block highways that were controversial. And so what you see is this imbalance where the rail, the rail networks had no support or almost no support from, from the government. So there was no way for them to be built. And they required Herculean you know, grassroots efforts to get built. But then meanwhile, you know, the highways are getting built whether you liked it or not. And we had in Cincinnati, we did have a few that got blocked. Um, there was supposed to be a a rail, I'm sorry, an interstate through uh, Coleraine Township up to Hamilton, you know, uh, between Hamilton Avenue and Coleraine. And they, they built the uh, the ramp for it down there at, uh, at uh, I-74, what has that north side exit, that kind of odd uh, interchange. They actually built some of the ramps for that when I was a kid, and then they were torn down around 2010, and they stood there for 20 or 30 years. And as a kid, I actually getting back to when I talked about Cross County Highway being unfinished when I was a kid, that was the same thing, too. You saw this project that had been started, but, you know, not completed. And to, to me, as a kid, it was just fascinating. It's like, boy, I could drive to College Hill in two minutes <laughs> yeah. instead of 12. You know, that's just how you think when you're a kid, you know. And uh, so, anyway, you know, that, that's where we're at. And we're at this, we're still in that, 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 uh, that, that phase where, you know, highways still get built and expanded without, you know, almost... You know, any you know, there's there's never a local vote to build these things. I mean, when we rebuilt Fort Washington Way here in downtown Cincinnati, there was no local vote for that. It just happened. You know, there was no controversy. It just happened. And then, meanwhile, 
you know, to build, you know, our, our small streetcar system, it took like 13 years. It's just been this unending thing, you know, to do like even this very, very small project. So you can see how it's just been imbalanced, you know, really from, from day one. You know, actually, from day one, from 1956 onward. So we're in a, a just a completely different mode. Uh, and the average person just doesn't care about the details. And that has worked to the car and oil company's advantage for, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Um, so I-75 was previously the Lachlan Highway until I-75 was kind of conceived. And 75 and 71 are really the first freeways built, correct, of the interstate system? In Cincinnati, yeah. yeah. In Cincinnati, I-71... I-75 I was across the river in 1963, but the section from about Hopple Street North was finished around, I think, 1958. So, and, and it used to dump traffic onto Central Parkway. And so Central Parkway was basically the approach for all that, what, what, uh, what, you know, not the volume of interstate traffic we have now, obviously, but, uh, you know, Central Parkway was carrying a ton of traffic in the 1950s because of that. And then that was all just completely bypassed by um, I-75. And then I-71 was completely finished uh, between 275 and downtown around, I think, 1974. And then I-74 conveniently was finished in I-74, or in 1974. It was very easy to remember. And then I-471 into Newport was open as we now know it, I think, in 1982. And actually, when I was a kid, I remember that being brand new. It was very, uh, it was a very nice looking highway when I was a kid. Yeah, I remember looking at the uh, city plan for 1948, and in fact, I think I wrote about this in the Shirts blog, is that um, the 275 was, it changed a little bit its path because it was supposed to not go into Indiana, as I recall. Right. It was supposed to end yeah. like around Sailor Park or something and, and rejoin 50 there. Yep, yep. Yeah, and they, they got some of Indiana's money. Uh, ah. Indiana's interstate highway money by extending it just a little bit more. And by doing that, they made it into a basically useless highway as a bypass. So, um, you know, a- as everybody knows, if you're going into Cincinnati, I mean, nobody really uses the bypass on either side because it is actually the largest bypass highway in the United States. It's like uh, oh, I didn't know that. 82 miles long. Yeah. So, I mean, if you compare it to other cities that have loops, like, say, Atlanta, I think Atlanta's uh, I think it's about 50 miles long or something like that, which, you know, you think 30 miles, or I'm sorry, a 30-mile difference is actually a, a profound difference um, in comparing the time. And, you know, Washington, D.C. is probably the most famous belt highway in, in the United States is uh, smaller than ours, but it's also much more useful. <laughs> and uh, Columbus's actually, I, uh, is pretty useful. Yeah. yeah. In Cleveland, we don't but have one. Washington, yeah, but also Washington, D.C., succeeded in canceling I-95 through the city. And so when you travel on I-95, you know, from Virginia up to uh, whatever, you know, Pennsylvania, you have to go around the 495 Beltway. So, you know, imagine they're just not, they're just being a critical missing link to our interstate highway system here in downtown Cincinnati. You would have to use the bypass. And that's part of the reason why the bypass traffic is so bad in uh, Washington, D.C. Ah. So um, I-74, another mystery, uh, it just kind of ends in Cincinnati, and then there's bits and pieces of it in the Carolinas. And uh, Correct. I, yeah, yep. I try, I, I drew, go ahead. I've been down there. It's it's kind of weird to see I-74 pop up out of the middle of nowhere when you're uh, driving to the beach. But uh, like uh, I-74, like if, for example, if you drive from Winston Salem, North Carolina, which I just did two weeks ago, 
if you drive from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where I-74 I is down there, you you drive up, I believe, 77 to the West Virginia Turnpike, then west on I-64 uh, at Charleston, West Virginia, and then you go through Huntington, and then you get on the AA Highway and get to Cincinnati that way, and it's really not, not that bad of a drive. Uh, I-74, the I-74 extension would... It would actually uh, go straight through West Virginia on these roads that are actually being built as we speak, which are like up in the sky. It's it's crazy. It's called um, there's one called the King Cole Highway, and I can't remember what the one that the one that's going to be, going to be I-74 is called. But they're actually they they reached these agreements with the coal companies in the early 2000s to allow them to do basically like strip mining and totally recontour the land in areas where they weren't allowed to mine previously, if they contoured the land when they were done in such a way to build, you know, a modern highway. And so the coal companies are essentially doing all the, the site prep for this highway. Now, I went out there myself back in 2013 because I was going to write an article on it, and I took photos, and it was spectacular to see. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, you're up in the middle of the wilderness, and out of nowhere there's this divided two-lane highway built to interstate standards that has no traffic on it. And you can actually drive on it for about, at that time, maybe maybe 12 miles or 15 miles were done. And they were built you know, through the, the most you know, rugged part first um, because the highway would be completely useless without that most rugged part built. And, uh, but I haven't been out there since. And from what I can gather from looking at Google Earth, it doesn't seem like there's been that much progress on it. And with coal dying off as an energy source, um, I think we're just never going to see it finished for that reason alone because it would just be much too expensive for the state to embark on the task itself. Um, because, you know, the traffic level, if you get on the AA Highway, I mean, the AA Highway and I-64 between Lexington and West Virginia, I mean, there's just not that many cars on that to begin with. And there have been sections upgraded on the Ohio side uh, because it was, it's expected to cross at Portsmouth, Ohio. And, there, for example, the Portsmouth Bypass was just built uh, under... Um, Oh, who was the, the previous, uh, already forgot his name, previous Ohio governor, <laughs> Kasich. And uh, you know, he pushed that through at a cost of $600 million. And they built like 18 miles you know, through the through the hills of Portsmouth of, of Scioto County. And, uh, you know, that was extraordinarily expensive, and, and the rest of it's going to be extraordinarily expensive. And I think we're just going to end up with basically a bunch of fragments 50 years from now of um, a project that was kind of ill-conceived from the beginning. But, you know, like I said 10 minutes ago, you know, highway projects are just never held to the same standard as transit projects. Yeah, I, one of the mysteries I uh, first stumbled upon here in this area when I moved here was the uh, on 275 in Milford, there's the, there it used to be a ghost interchange. It went off to 50 uh, to the east, and then, is that east or west? East, east. And then to the west, it would go in, uh, just dead-ended into a field. Uh, towards yep. Milford. Okay, and I was uh, so one of the things I wrote about for the blog was, and someone had told me, or maybe I just uh, theorized this that that was going to be where seventy four was going to come through the other side of Cincinnati, and it turns out uh, that was not the case. And let me see if this jives with you. I the highway department, I called them, and they were very helpful. Uh, they said no, that was going to be the bypass for fifty around Milford. It was going to go across. Uh, uh, behind Milford and then rejoin 50, uh, kind of where the border Terrace Park is, presumably. And um, I'm like, aha, that's interesting. And then as for I-74, uh, he explained to me that they had, it, it was supposed to go, uh, 
it's going to be an Interstate 73 going through Ohio, but Ohio and Michigan have absolutely no plans to build Interstate 73 to connect to 74 around Portsmouth and Scioto County. Well, well, it's funny you say that because 73 exists in North Carolina as well. And so the, the full plan was like for 73, I think, to go from uh, Toledo to Columbus. Yes. Then due, due south to Portsmouth, then join with I-74, and then they were they were going to be airlined for 100 or 200 miles through West Virginia and then separate again. Yeah. So, I mean, there absolutely is, you know, there are significant vestiges of that plan. I mean, uh, I mean, it, 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 they actually said go on it. I mean, quite a bit of money has been spent on this. And as you know, I mean, all that infrastructure that it was built out there in, in Milford, I mean, it doesn't have much traffic on it. Um, you know, 32, the Appalachian Highway out to Athens, Ohio, has almost zero traffic on them, and you can the Amish actually drive their buggies on that on that highway that's supposed to become I seventy four and I seventy three. So they're just there's been this huge push, along with you know the, the city stuff. There's been a huge push for fifty years by rural legislators to bring money back to their district and to upgrade these state highways, you know, in these remote parts of the United States. And it was always said, oh, it's going to bring all this business, and it just never does. I mean, you can drive 32 to Athens, and there is, and that was finished in the late 1990s, I believe, because I remember driving out to Athens maybe in 95 and it not being completely finished. But you can drive that, and I think in 180 miles, there's like a single Burger King and a gas station with Hunt Brothers Pizza that is set up. I mean, it's like you know, there is nothing. It has attracted nothing in 20 <laughs> years. So, you know, this, you know, people complain, you know, nobody's going to ride the streetcar, but then it's like, Nobody, you know, drives these rural highways. I mean, we, we all see the statistics where steadily rural America is depopulating. So, but we just keep throwing money at it. You know, uh, hope springs eternal. <laughs> I guess so. And they've even, even recently they've um, upgraded 32 to be uh, interstate, what do they call it? Interstate grade in a lot of spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, I guess. Right, right. And, and uh, my parents, they live in uh, Nashville, Tennessee now, and Nashville does not have a belt highway. And they, at a great expense, they built this new uh, Beltway Highway called 840. And 840 is so far beyond the center of Nashville that it's like literally like 45 miles from downtown Nashville to I-840. It forms this gigantic arc. And you can drive on it now, and you know it's been open, completely open, uh, I guess, for about six or seven years. And I mean, there's almost no traffic on that thing either. And so you can just see that you know, and they had to build it so far out because so many wealthy people owned significant pieces of land where they had, you know, horses and things like that that they were forced politically to move further and further and further out with it. So, you know, we're kind of in a situation in the United States where we're kind of stuck with what we have to a large extent with, with the highway corridors, and uh, maybe that, that's not a bad thing. But, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think the, the, the era of grandiose highway expansion uh, – Maybe maybe that's drawing to a close right now. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, a friend of mine once said who knew a guy that worked in the highway system, he told him, and he used to live in Atlanta, so I guess this is maybe true in cities, but maybe not so like you are saying out in rural areas, that if when you build these highways, uh, the population will quickly grow to fill it. And I oh, guess, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then meanwhile, you know, Atlanta does have MARTA, which is, you know, a true rapid transit system. You know, it's not like a light rail system where it crosses intersections at grade and things like that occasionally and or any street running section is a true rapid transit system and unfortunately it uh, it was not really built in a uh, 
in a city that really needed it. I mean, Cincinnati would have benefited much more because Cincinnati is much more densely built. And then that system itself was kind of laid out for political purposes. So, you know, if you look, you know, it's laid out in a perfect cross because the cross looks fair. So, you know, I, I mentioned you know, the Cincinnati Rapid Transit Loop. Well, a circle looks fair. Well, so does a cross. You know, and that's sort of the problem with transit lines. Is it's like it really does only benefit, for the most part, the people within one or two miles of the transit line. And, and then if you ask people on the other side of the county to pay for it, obviously they're going to be ticked. So that's like a big problem with the funding mechanisms that we have because we expect them to be funded, you know, 50% local, whereas interstate highways were only 10% local. So, you know, it's just, it's just not even fair at all how, how it's set up. I mean, I don't know how it's done in Europe. I don't know how it's done in Japan or Korea or those kind of places, but, you know, they just get it built and it doesn't seem to be anywhere near as, as uh, controversial as it is here. Um, one little stray note I had here, we were talking about uh, the Reagan Highway, the Cross County Highway. So it's generally regarded that the uh, eastern terminus is at Montgomery Road because there was no way they were going to be able to get through Indian Hill without a lot of opposition. Is that true, or was it just supposed to end at Montgomery Road and just connect 71? And It's, it's definitely a, a solid story. I mean, it makes sense to me. I've never actually... I think I did try to like actually find the answer to that one time, and I was never able to find that, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And you know, it's, there's also the the myth that Hamilton didn't want the interstate highway system, didn't want I-75, and like that's that's not true. I mean, I-75 for it to go to Hamilton before it went to Dayton would have added a huge deflection to the route. Um, and, it, and it was true that US 20, uh, that Hamilton Avenue, the Corinth Expressway that I mentioned before. Was going, to, was going to be built like a radial expressway up to Hamilton, and that did not get built. And that, that was catastrophic for, for Hamilton, <laughs> that they didn't, you know, because it became this bizarre island of no interstate access. And so, you know, as you know, Hamilton's downtown totally died off by the, by the 1980s. And uh, the, uh, what was called the Michael A. Fox Highway when it was built, which is now the Butler County Regional Highway, because I think... Didn't Michael Fox go to jail? I can't he remember. got in some kind of trouble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was, he did. He did something bad. They took his name off. <laughs> but uh, you know that highway is nice, but it's still it's a, still inconvenient to go to Hamilton. It is, yeah. And I've got to go there. Um, actually, weirdly, next Friday for my daughter's driving test. So. Oh wow! Yeah, ironically, yeah. So, um, yeah, um, and one last little uh, question to have for you, you might know about is, um, you, we were talking about the Fort Washington Way and the the redesign. Are they ever going to put those lids on there, man? We heard about. Well, I mean, no less a luminary than Carl Linder himself, whose name is now emblazoned on Third Street, um, was had a hand in, uh, you know, he he put some of his own money into driving the piles into the center of Fort Washington Way, which have been sitting there now for 20 years. And so the, the some money has been a significant amount of money. It's, it's over $10 million has been invested in building those lids over Fort Washington Way. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, they're not there. So, you know, I, I have no doubt. I mean, I know his sons know that they spent that money on that. <laughs> and they're still influential, very influential in the city of Cincinnati. So, you know, if anything aesthetic and not totally functionally necessary ever gets built in Cincinnati. It costs a lot of money. I, I bet it'd be something like that. And uh, I know there are, uh, I think people are a little, uh, people are definitely disappointed in the slowness that it's taken to get the banks built because here we are literally 20 years later. I mean, Paul Brown Stadium opened in uh, August of 2000. 
So we're, you know, literally 20 years later, and it's about half built. And, you know, the, the, the gigantic recession happened, and that's not Cincinnati's fault, obviously. But yeah. uh, I think everybody's a little frustrated that it has taken this long. I think the other thing that people, and I remember thinking that even at the time, the thing that people didn't really understand is when they say, hey, we're building a new neighborhood on the riverfront. Well, it's like, does it have a post office? Does it have a VFW chapter? Does it have, you know, a church? You know, does it have a grade school? I mean, no, it doesn't. And so, you know, it's not really a neighborhood. Let's not use like that term. And yeah. so I think because it doesn't have day-to-day functionality, you know, there aren't families with kids living there. I think that from the beginning, they should have thought about things in those terms, and they really didn't. And so as a result, it doesn't have a, like a 24-hour sort of functionality. And it's really not too late for those things to happen. I mean, that could all still happen because there's plenty of spare land down there. But uh, I think that uh, my opinion of the banks is that they did tear down a couple old buildings um, that had, you know, ground-level entrances, obviously, that were taller. And they could have kept a couple of those and just, you know, turned the third floor into where you entered and things like that. And that could have kept some character down there. Um, there was a giant warehouse where the Bengals practice field is now. I mean, it's almost as big as Longworth Hall that got torn down. I think that was a mistake to tear that down. Because uh, you go down there now, and it's kind of like you're in like Vancouver or some like you know place with no character. I mean, you delete the suspension bridge, and there's nothing old down there. That's and true. There you're yeah. at the, the very origins of the city itself. That's true. That, that, that's uh, I didn't ever think of it that way. Um, so your book, let's plug that. It's Cincinnati's Incomplete Subway: The Complete History. That's still available, of course, uh, digitally and regularly uh, wherever you get books, digitally or otherwise. Uh, it's out there. Yep, I've sold a couple thousand copies. <laughs> and uh, the website is Cincinnati-Transit.net. And Jeff and I were discussing. Well, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the website was hacked recently. Oh. So, and I have not been able to get on there and fix it because there's like a some sort of strange dispute because it was uh, hosted by Yahoo Web Hosting. And they Yahoo sold its web hosting, and I couldn't get on there because I couldn't remember some password from 2002. And so I need to get back on there and try to do it. But it got hacked, and all the links lead to uh, uh, internet gambling now. So if you get on there and you want to do sports betting, <laughs> you yeah, can I was wondering about that. It. Oh, we must, he must got his kind of spot. Well, no, if you click on the I seventy four page, for example, it goes to the I seventy four page. But some right? of, some of the links have been hacked. Which oh, maybe is, it doesn't. Maybe like, I just assumed it did. No, it does. Yeah, but like, at the very bottom, there are a bunch of uh, on there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, 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 that is not, that was not my doing. I, I don't know who was responsible for that. Okay. But, uh, I, did seem and I don't know how I, I, may, I could ever get even with them in uh, exact revenge, but uh, I, need to, I need to get on there and fix that. Okay, well, great. Well, in the meantime, uh, buy the book, folks, and I'm going to talk to Josh and Darren about we should. This is a book we should be carrying in the store because we uh, we carry a couple books about Cincinnati in the stores, and uh, certainly this has uh, always been of interest to people in the area for sure. So uh, well, I've got uh, I've got some copies at my uh, house if you if you want some. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll um I'll talk to those guys about that. Yeah, we'll definitely. Uh, um, try to get something rolling on that. I'll discuss that at the at the month at the uh, weekly meeting uh, on Monday. Uh, the only other business we have left here is uh, again I don't know if you've heard the show before, but um, as a guest you get to pick the coupon code for the entire next week until the next episode drops, and it'll allow people to take twenty percent off uh, their entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. So what would you like that uh, word or phrase to be? Okay, the, the coupon code is going to be my cat's name. 
which is Melvin, M-E-L-V-I-N. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there you go. Right, Melvin, simple enough. All right, man. Well, great. Well, appreciate you doing this on a Sunday. Uh, we're missing the Bengals game. We're missing the Browns game. They're probably both losing by now. But um, yeah. let's, uh, let, we'll get back to that. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk again sometime uh, more about Cincinnati highways and transportation and stuff. Terrific. Great. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Jake Mecklenburg. So the website does work, CincinnatiTransit.net. There's a dash in there, by the way. Uh, it doesn't go to betting sites directly. There are links to that at the bottom. So if you want to look up Cincinnati's highway system and the subway and the bridges and all that stuff and then want to bet on some sports, we'll have at it. But if you click on each of the individual links, like the Roebling Bridge, I tested a few of them, uh, I-74, I-75, it goes to these original pages. And uh, contrary to what he said in the interview, Wikipedia didn't really steal all of his information. And Wikipedia, I don't think, supersedes his stuff. His stuff is a lot more detailed. So if you have... A, you you know, any interest or questions about the highways or the subway, you'll find a lot more on his website than I think you will in Wikipedia, even though they cribbed some of his notes, as they say. Uh, the book is Cincinnati's Incomplete Subway, The Complete History. That's available wherever you get books. I'm going to see what we can do about carrying it uh, on the Cincy Shirts website, as well as in the two stores. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like to have back on the podcast, email us podcast at cincyshirts.com. Put podcast guest in the subject line. Tell us who you'd like to have on or have on again. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, go back and check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives from baseball great Johnny Bench to actress Amy Asbeck. Lots of great episodes back there, I guarantee it. Today's show is produced by me, with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and a lot more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We've got like 36 cities in there now. Uh, defunct sports teams, uh, like soccer, hockey, basketball, that sort of affair. Uh, shopping malls, restaurants, radio stations, old TV personalities, like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code of this episode is MELVIN. That's Jake's cat. MELVIN, M-E-L-V-I-N. Uh, all one word, obviously. All lowercase, all uppercase. That part doesn't matter. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or you can go into our stores in Hyde Park and over the Rhine and say you'd like to use the promo code from the recent, the most recent episode of the podcast. Uh, that would be Melvin, of course. And then follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.
wish I said goodbye.